the Jewish views on Yom Ha'atzma'ut. Ahead of taking part in the ZF celebrations, we speak to former Israeli Eurovision champion Dana International. Danny Tucker tells us how she has honored her late mother in the form of a new cookbook, and the day in which Kinloss United Synagogue hope you'll be inspired. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Students at the University of Lincoln have voted to disaffiliate from the National Union of Students, becoming the first to leave after NUS delegates elected an anti-Israel president last month. The university, which doesn't have many Jewish students, voted to withdraw its membership, which cost Lincoln Students' Union more than £50,000 per annum in fees. The new NUS president, Malia Boatia, has denied claims of anti-Semitism after she spoke of the Zionist-led media. The Union of Jewish Students Campaigns Director, Russell Langer, said that the vote in Lincoln sends a message to the NUS that students aren't happy with its current direction. The new London mayor, Sadiq Khan, has been invited to Israel by the mayor of Tel Aviv. Ron Huldai, who previously hosted Boris Johnson for talks, said he'd be honoured to host his successor and wished him muzzled off. He went on to mention Mr Khan's clear condemnation of anti-Semitism during his campaign, saying it was most pleasing. And the new mayor's first act in office last Sunday was to attend the UK's main Holocaust memorial ceremony, which was held at Barnet's Coptal Stadium. Still in Barnet, the council's chief executive, Andrew Travers, is leaving his post by mutual agreement after the fiasco of last week's mayoral and London Assembly elections, when thousands of names were missing from electoral lists at all of the North London Authority's 155 polling stations. Many people, including the chief rabbi and his wife, were unable to vote. Jewish Care has signed a deal to supply kosher food to hospitals within the M25 area. The charity will be working in partnership with the Hospital Kosher Meal Service to provide food for people who suffer from a difficulty in swallowing. There will be the first range of kosher reform pureed meals on offer in the UK. And finally, two brothers who were born in the Bergen-Belsen Nazi death camp have met for the first time in 65 years. The two men, who grew up in Canada and Israel, were brought together by researchers after seven decades of silence from their mother Ada, who refused to speak about what happened. That's the news. Now the sport with Andrew Sherwood. Thanks, Viv. Avi Coleman's stunning second-half strike saw Hendon beat Raiders 1-0 in the final of the Peter Morrison Trophy. The win was Hendon's third consecutive National Cup win, which also denied Raiders winning their first ever treble. Following the match, David Garbaz, who had won nine trophies in six years at the club, announced he was stepping down as Hendon manager. In the Masters division, Chigwell Athletic and Maccabi London Lions both secured League and Cup doubles, Chigwell in Division 1 and Lions in Division 2. In rugby, Sam Katz has signed for English Championship side Jersey ahead of the start of the new season. He had previously played for Spanish top-flight side Silver Storm El Salvador. And finally, in judo, Israeli Gili Cohen won her first international judo federation Grand Slam title in Azerbaijan. Fellow Israeli Alice Schlesinger, who now represents GB, was also a gold winner, her first Grand Slam win in four years. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave, and let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News. Joining me is Features Editor Fran Wolfish and Editor Richard Ferrer. Welcome to you both. Well, where do we start? Always the front page. Richard, I know that at the time of recording this last week, we didn't know the results, even though when it was transmitted on Friday and Sunday, technically we did. London has a new mayor. Yes, after weeks of bitter rows and recriminations in the Labour Party, finally, something of a positive note emanating from uh, Her Majesty's opposition. Sadiq Khan is London's new mayor. He's on our front page this week. His entire election campaign in the last couple of weeks was dogged by uh, accusations of Labour anti-Semitism. He's risen above it. He's been an example, I think, in terms of communal relations. He's been very much about sending a positive message of unity. He says he's going to be a mayor for all denominations, for Jews, Muslims and everyone else. His first event Coincidentally, but it sent a powerful message, was the Yom HaShoah commemoration on Sunday. He sat next to the chief rabbi. And if his mayoral time in office continues in the way it's begun, I think this could be a good healing four years for Labour and the Jewish community. But obviously the jury is still out. See, the thing is, though, that a lot of people have said already, even in the short time he's been in office, that the problem is that the mayor of London, regardless whether it was Boris Johnson, Ken Livingstone or Sadiq Khan, is that their party politics don't often get a chance to shine through because the job is so different from your standard MP. So it'd be interesting to see how he does make the two marry up. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously one point away from the Parliamentary Labour Party. In fact, there's going to be a by-election in Tooting in a matter of weeks, so he will no longer actually even sit in Westminster. But he's certainly somebody, I think, in the Labour Party that the Jewish community respects, can work with, feels he understands the Jewish community and what makes it tick. Obviously, down the line, we've got the Code of Conduct and the inquiry led by uh, Shami Chakrabarti. But that's all for another day. That's all for later in the summer. Right now, I think hopefully we can we can take a moment to think and reflect, and it's a positive moment in uh, a catalogue of bad news that I think has marred the community and the Labour Party in recent weeks. Certainly has. It's almost quite exciting to see the front page of the Jewish News maybe containing the word Labour, but not necessarily containing the word anti-Semitism. It's, it's a good week. And also just to add to that, I mean, Jeremy Newmark, I think, hit the nail on the head when he said that Sadiq's campaign set a gold standard and how relations between a high-profile politician and the Jewish community should work. Good on him. You know, he, as Richard has already said, he put his head above all the dirty politics that were going on, and hopefully he will be a unifying mayor for London. As ever, time, I'm sure, will tell. Also on the front page this week, which is rather thought-provoking, is what makes Israel tick, and it's apparently some Brits you're talking about that make Israel tick. Who are these people and why are they making your front page? Mm, yeah, obviously a lot of British people decide to make Aliyah and it's a challenge making a success in uh, your personal life and in your career in what is fundamentally a foreign country with a foreign language and foreign culture has massive obstacles. We have profiled six people who are shining examples of Anglo Jewry done good in Israel. These are people that shape Israeli politics and culture, real movers and shakers. So we've got six people. We've got someone who's a spokesman for the army, someone who's a spokesman for the police. That's Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner and Mickey Rosenfeld, who I'm sure our listeners 
listeners will have seen on TV and heard on radio, especially at times of conflict. Jason Perlman, who is a media representative for the president. Karen Kaufman, who works for the Tony Blair Faith Foundation. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be familiar with a lot of these names. And this is going to be a precursor to something we're going to do later in the year when we're going to run down the 30 people in Israel from the UK who are shaping Israeli life. So it's a, it's a real chance, I think, to look at these role models and just really appreciate the challenges they faced and, and the work that they do. And isn't it funny, I don't know whether or not it's a case of me being narrow-minded, but whenever I think of Israel and people in the top jobs there, I just obviously, and I'm sure many others do, automatically assume that they have to be Israeli. And of course, forget the countless number of people who, as you say, make Aliyah and they do just slowly but surely rise through the ranks. It's a bit thought-provoking, isn't it, Fran? It is. And it's nice to see, actually, that Brits can go abroad and make their mark and put their stamp and add a bit of English or Britishness to Israeli, you know, the Israeli culture, as Rich has already said. And I think what's incredible is the high-ranking jobs that they're in, you know, the army, politics police i mean they've really sort of they're movers and shakers so we should feel very proud of them indeed bravo them i say someone else that we would say bravo to if we actually got to see her performing would be sheridan smith now this is obviously to do with her new part in the production of funny girl but why does this feel yet again that there's marred with a bit of uh, problems involved why is it sheridan smith and performing sometimes just don't go together what what's happened where is she well you know what i have to say i think this is a real shame i was fortunate enough possibly to be one of the last people to actually see sheridan on stage last week and there was a standing ovation from the stalls to the upper circle i mean it was incredible people absolutely loved her and i'm not just saying that she just absolutely lit up that stage i think there's absolutely no doubt that she's a very talented incredible performer you know she's sort of a triple threat she dances she sings she acts she can do it all we know that she's very very capable and yet sadly there's obviously some kind of personal issue going on at the moment she was snubbed obviously at the BAFTAs there's been snipes made by other well-known celebrities there's been sort of nasty tweets going back and forth caused a bit of a twitter meltdown from herself and obviously she's going through struggling with a personal issue which is that her father has been diagnosed with cancer and her brother died from the same disease so obviously she's going through a tough time Personally, I think the media have been a bit cruel this week, possibly have not helped the situation. And three nights running now, she's been a no-show. Goodness. So, but all that aside... How was she? (laughs) She was incredible. And I'm not just saying that. I do hope people will still go and see the show. And by all reckoning, the understudy, Natasha Barnes, has been putting in a great performance as well. It's still a fantastic show. Michael Mayer as I wrote in my review, which is available online. He does put the oi into joy. It's not too schmaltzy. It's very high, Misha. If you like your Yiddish sprinklings and a little bit of musical and funny girl, who doesn't love funny girl? Go and see it. It is a great show. 
I have to take my hat off to our, our thespians. When I have a bad day at work, I can just sit at my desk. You know, I might just growl at Fran or, you know, I might just scratch, scratch my beard. I'll say very little to, to anyone and I'll get away with it. But obviously our actors, you know, have to be with jazz hands and sparkly smiles. Even if they're having a bad day, they've got to get back on stage and give the audience their money's worth. So she's clearly a brilliantly talented woman who's, you know, trod the boards where Barbara Streisand has trod before with Funny Girl, which is, I think, I haven't seen the show. It's, I imagine it's very physically demanding and a and a, and a, a brilliant spectacle. But the poor woman, I hope she can kind of find a, a sense of, of, of comfort in the in the weeks to come and this show can go from strength to strength. It's, it sounds like a real barnstormer. And so say all of us and from everyone at the Jewish Views and Jewish News, respectively, get well soon, Sheridan Smith. Absolutely. Come back to us soon. Now, at JW3, we're in for a bit of a footy legend, are we not? David Beckham is going to make an appearance there. Why? Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get our, our, our Jewish sporting legends where we can get them, I guess. So there's, what, Mark Spitz, the, uh, the Olympic swimmer. There was Ronnie Rosenthal, the Liverpool and Spurs footballer. And there's David Beckham, whose grandfather... One of his maternal, grand, uh, his maternal grandfather was actually Jewish, and he named him as a source of great inspiration. That might be one of the subjects that comes up when he speaks at JW3 next month. He's going to be in conversation with Kirsty Walk. He's obviously the, one of the biggest celebrities in the country, and he's at the biggest Jewish community centre in the country. So hottest ticket of the summer, that one. Certainly will be. And have you got your tickets yet? Well, or? you know what? If I can get in, I will. Trust me. I mean, I'm a bit of you're a... You're beaming. You are. You're, a, you're giddy well, at the thought. doesn't? Time. Who doesn't want to see Beckham in the flesh? Come on now. And I think as well, to give him credit, moving on from his football career, he's done lots of great things. He really is an inspirational figure for lots of young footballers. But also, you know, he's an ambassador, goodwill ambassador for UNICEF. And he's done lots of charity work and, you know, Good on him. I think he'll be a very interesting speaker. You're listening to The Jewish Views. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you know, Yom Ha'atzmaut was this week just gone, and as you'd expect, the Zionist Federation weren't going to let this go unmarked. An event at a location in central London saw a crowd entertained by various acts, and one of them just happened to be Dana International, of course, the former Israeli winner of Eurovision from all those years back, if you remember it. Coincidentally, the annual Eurovision Song Contest is upon us once more, and I'm terribly excited to say that I got the chance to go and speak to Dana before she went on stage. I started by asking her, does she ever get tired of the association with Eurovision? Of course, I get sick of it, not just tired. (laughs) I got sick of it, yeah. So what, everywhere you go, people always say, oh, you're Donna from Eurovision, despite your amazing career. It's not like that. It's like, you know, once you win the Eurovision, you have a a wonderful year, but it also comes with, with a curse, you know. You stay only within the Eurovision world and no one allows you to spread out and, you know to continue with your career. It's, it's just like people want to hear the song you've won with, and that's all. When you won Eurovision, take us back to that moment. What did it feel like when you did win? Oh, I felt gorgeous. I can't describe it, you know. You have to be in my foot to, to understand it. It's like a divine uh, experiment. I don't know how to explain it. It's, it never happened to me again since that winning 
gorgeous feeling, un countless happiness, you know, I was so happy. And would you say that it's, it's helped music career rather than hindered it though, surely? Of course it has, because you know, a lot of countries invite me to festivals and concerts and I've seen many, so many places around the world. Yeah, I'm not complaining, I'm just uh, being thankful. And what's your favourite place you've travelled to so far? Mm, Canarian Islands. Wrong answer. Anyway, <laughs> how many times? Absolutely prefer London. How many times have you been to London, and do you do you enjoy when you come here? I used to live here for six months. I've been here at least twenty times on and off. And does it get better every time, or not? Well, uh, depend. It, I like the politeness of the people. I like the the atmosphere. But if I want to catch a lover boy, it's better for me to find it in Berlin or in Barcelona. <laughs> And do you find that when you do come to places such as London, the welcome is always warm? You d you've no complaints? You're happy when you're here? Yeah, you know, it's a continental city. It's, uh, even if you don't mean it, the, the, the English, uh, the British, they have their ways of being polite, even if they don't mean it, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, hopefully I'm being polite so far. When, when you first made it big time, it, you know, people often said that, that you were an inspiration because of, of what you went through growing up and, and all that you went through with recognizing that you're transgender and all of that. Do you still get people saying how you've inspired them on that front? I don't like to inspire anyone about my sexuality. I think it's individual. It's a very private decision and no one can look at... Uh, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously you are here tonight to perform in celebration of Yom Ha'atzmaut. And, and what is it that you love about Israel? Well, I like the atmosphere. I like that uh, they let me be who I want to be and they accept me, which is a very big paradox. You know, it's a very holy land and full of orthodox but at the same time very liberal and tolerant and I just love my country. <laughs> and what about this evening? You know, you, you do you ever get nervous still performing in front of the crowds? No. <laughs> well, I suppose once you've performed in front of Eurovision crowd, anything goes really, anything is small. Eurovision, it's different because you're being uh, uh, judged. Yeah. You can win, either win or lose. Here you are just uh, performing, making people feel, uh, have fun and uh, like friends, like family. And how long are you in London for? Two days. Go oh, two days and that's it? Yeah. Where's next? I have a big party in Stockholm after the Eurovision. <laughs> Do you ever relax? Do you ever get time off? Are you always busy, always on the move? Mm, generally, in, around uh, July, I'm in Spain for a whole month, you know, for the sun and everything. To anyone listening, obviously people are going to be celebrating Yom Hozman in their own way. What would you say to them? Be happy, accept everyone. Don't hate, just love. Bit of an Israeli singing legend, I'd say. Dana International talking to me there about many things, including her appearance at the annual ZF evening for Yom Ha'atzma'ut. And of course, Eurovision. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by journalist Jenny Fraser and retired audiobook reader Denise Assassin. They will be discussing the religious side of Judaism and asking, is it disappearing? 
Plus, Kate Fulton will be speaking to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence about a day of inspiration that they should be holding at Kinloss United Synagogue. Now, I'm sure that we've all lost members of our family and friends in the past, and we all have our own unique ways of remembering them and keeping them with us. But Danny Tucker has made sure that her late mother will be remembered for years to come through a fantastic new cookbook created from her mother's recipes, along with stories from her kitchen table. I absolutely love the sound of this. And Diana Toman has been finding out more for us by speaking to Danny. She started by asking her whether or not she'd inherited her mother's cooking genes. Thank God I have got some sort of creative, maybe not cooking, but creative genes, that's for sure. How does it show itself? Just anything creative. I do cook. I love cooking. I make birthday cakes and I love just creating anything. Flowers, any craft. And the whole family came from Johannesburg, did it? Well, my mum, my mum's side of the family came from Johannesburg and my dad came from a very small town just slightly outside of Johannesburg called Benoni. And when did they come over here? They came over just before I was born, a couple of years before I was born. But by that time, your mother was an accomplished cook, I guess. Yeah, they met at hotel school, which was the love story of the century. And my dad got a scholarship to come to London. And at that time, everyone was looking for a way out of South Africa. So this was like a great ticket, you know. So my dad got a scholarship to work at the Savoy and they moved to London not married and they thought let's start a new life together my mum worked for a Prulith at the time of starting Leith's cooking school did so she? she was yeah she's a qualified chef and your father was at the Savoy yeah as what as a there. chef no he was working in management hotel management but they were very involved together in, in cooking and all that kind of stuff and I've had a look through the website and now I'm actually got my little hands on the actual book I can see the recipes are fantastic. She was she was very widely talented, wasn't she? Yeah. I mean, this just wasn't, you know, soups and mains. This was fabulous cakes and puddings and everything else. Yeah, it was all about entertaining for her. She just loved people being around her. And the more she cooked, the more people seemed to turn up and it just became a snowball effect. And, yeah, she loved having loads of people. So the food kind of came too. In my copy of the book, I've got a lovely piece of pink ribbon, which is, has weaved its way through the book. How is that? Why is that? One of the things my mum loved to do was sew and anything to do with her hands. So she also was creative and I think that's where I got my kind of genes from. Right. And she used to collect ribbons and stuff like that. So I was desperate when we were making the book to have a beautiful ribbon like sewn in and beautifully done. And when it came down to it, the cost of the book was creeping up and I wanted to keep it down. So more money went to the charity. So one of the things was to get rid of the ribbon and I was heartbroken. But my mum had collected all these ribbons over the years and then we've got, my, she has a whole beautiful room full of them and one of the guys that was the guy that was doing the book for me amazing guy he said to me what are you going to do with the ribbons and I said I I don't know you know like what are we going to do with them he said cut them up put them in the books so in each book there's a piece of ribbon that I've personally cut from her massive collection so a little piece of her a little piece of her love goes with every book what a lovely yeah, thought. So sweet. When you say we developed the book, who, who apart from My you? My family. I think it was a family kind of team effort. You've got brothers it, and sisters? I've got a brother and sister. My dad obviously played a huge part. I mean, this was definitely my love and my passion and I wanted to push it forward so it's been my priority but they've definitely been there in the background for sure. And when did all this start? So my mum passed away about two and a half years ago now and the most I think the most amazing thing was that I was away at a bat mitzvah in 
Los Angeles before my mum died. And a week before she died, I came back from the holiday knowing that she was already in hospital, but she was in and out, didn't think much of it because it was so normal for me. And when I landed in Heathrow, my dad said, you must come straight to the hospital. It's not, don't go home. So I never went home and I went straight to the hospital and she progressively got worse and, and she sadly passed away. So a solid week I stayed in the, ho- in the hospital, I call it a hotel because I'm so used to being there. I never went home. So I hadn't actually been home for like three weeks to my home. When she passed away, you, I went and got clothes from my for the funeral and all that kind of stuff. So when I walked into my house, everything was closed up, but I just grabbed some clothes to run out. I, thought, I must just check my house. So I went to my house and checked, you know, the living room was okay, the kitchen was okay. And when I went into my dining room, all her handwritten cookbooks were sitting on my dining room table. And to this day, I've got absolutely no idea how they got there. And I was like completely startled when I saw them. You must have been freaked. I, completely. And I've asked people, I've asked, no one knows how they got there. And when I saw them, I just thought, there's something I've got to do with these. And and it slowly came that I've got to write a cookbook with them. I can't just leave them. This was her legacy. Yeah, this yeah. was her legacy That's to what you. I did, yeah. Yes. What a lovely thought. Mm. And what about this charity? Tell me about the charity who are going to receive the proceeds. So the doctor, Professor Malcolm Ruston, is an amazing doctor. And he looked after my mum and he started this charity which researches in skin diseases. So they Is that do- what she had? Yeah, she started with pustular psoriasis and she had it extremely bad. One of the worst cases I've ever seen and it developed into autoimmune diseases. So anything kind of related to autoimmune, so her skin, her, her tummy, her... But she had the most horrendous diseases that really were very, you know, new and no one had ever really seen before. And he started this charity to kind of research into anything to do with skin diseases, but they do research where they actually come up with with medicine and creams and they're now on the market so they've done incredibly well and they're called the derma trust the derma trust and that's where where all the proceeds are going to how old was she when she passed away 53 and she'd been cooking all her life well all her adult life all her life she tells told me stories of when she was a kid she used to cook for her dad yeah she used to cook all the time and you say she's got some little tricks apparently that she was passed on to you yeah little, little cookery tricks yeah right? cookery tricks and just hosting tricks and just you know not to take things so seriously and just have a bit of fun and wing it as she used to say like come on you know just play around see what you can do and is that what you do with your cooking yeah just have a bit of fun if you're missing an ingredient what else do you have in the cupboard right no that's lovely to be so laid back about things <laughs> and, and not sort of stick to a recipe you know yeah. so rigorously that yeah. you that you'd be yourself up about yeah. it absolutely so that's half the reason why i struggled with the book because we just chucked we just made up and we just enjoyed everything so it was just a matter of like now putting it into a book you have to have proper quantities right. <laughs> so i had to get a chef to help me out with all of that because i'm not a qualified chef right. but i love cooking so it was all just a handful of this and a handful yeah, of that exactly <laughs> you can't really have and also we had like 50 people at a time you can't sell a book for yeah. <laughs> the recipe that's for 50 people so we True. had to bring everything down but you can double and uh, you how's know. it been selling the book so well i've had has such it? great great response from it amazing people have been interested in it they love it and i honestly have been so surprised at how well it's done well i'm looking at it now and i can certainly recommend it but if people want to get their own copy where do they get it from so you can either get it from my website which is the socialkitchen.org or amazon don't you just love that story 
Danny Tucker talking to Diana Toman there about her cookbook, The Social Kitchen, Food for Family and Friends, written in memory of her late mother, Shally Tucker. If you would like to get your hands on a copy, the book is priced at £25, and as you heard, the proceeds will go to the Derma Trust. It can be ordered, as Danny has just said, if you go to www.thesocialkitchen.org or you can order it through Amazon. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter. We are at jewishviews. UK. Now, although primarily here at The Jewish Views we are a news and culture programme, occasionally we can get in touch with our religious side, once in a while. And that's exactly what Kinloss United Synagogue are hoping to help people achieve on Sunday the 15th of May through an event called Day of Inspiration. It will bring together a whole host of different rabbis from across the Jewish spectrum who will be celebrating our people and our land through the study of Torah. There's only one person on our team religious enough to take this on, our very own Kate Fulton. She's been speaking to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss, and she started by asking him to tell us what the day is all about. It's really exciting to have an opportunity to present 20 world-class Torah scholars and educators in Kinloss. Originally, I'd intended to do a 24-hour Torah-thon and sensibly was talked out of that by people who were a little more practical. The idea is to celebrate our people and our land through the Torah. And from nine in the morning through till 10 in the evening, we have got successive presentations of about 40 minutes each by world-class Jewish leaders and personalities. We have our scholar-in-residence, Rabbi Yosef Carmel, whose organization, Eretz Chemda, is responsible for training modern Orthodox Dayanim around the world. He's with us over Shabbat in Kinlos as well. We also have five presenters on live video link-up. Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, a world-class authority and commentator, powerful fellow but no longer traveling. Chief Rabbi Warren Goldstein from South Africa, Rabbi Riskin from Israel, and Rabbi Shal Robinson from Lincoln Square in New York. Also, Rabbi Avram Steinberg speaking from Israel, live on video, locally, a couple of Dianim, Diane Binstock and Diane Abraham, Rebitson, Alana Epstein, Rebitson, Rachie Binstock, and Yoetzet, Lauren Levine. And someone who's coming along to for the, for the day, would you imagine families? Are you imagining individuals? Do they have to be very learned in, in Torah? Absolutely don't need to be learned. Need to be interested in Torah. Families are welcome. We've even got crash facilities in the morning. Anybody can turn up. We are also highlighting three really important organizations within the Jewish community, Magen David Adom, Mizrahi, and One Family. And they will have their presenters and representatives speaking through the day to show the valuable connection between their charities, Israel, and the diaspora community. This is an incredible day. I'm looking at the brochure here with all the various different events. It must have taken some organization. It 
has taken a huge amount of organization on one level. And getting the timetabling together was quite a challenge. What really amazed me was when I spoke to our keynote presenters and invited them to participate. They all leapt at the chance. And we found ourselves full of enthusiastic people to present. I have no idea how many people are going to turn up. We've printed brochures and we have prepared the room and we have got a fabulous screen set up with audio visual displays for everything that happens during the course of the day. I'm just hoping that people will come, not everybody all at once. Anybody wanting to stay from nine in the morning through till 10 at night, join me and I will be there with you through it. If you want to come for just an hour or a couple of hours, the program is on our Kinloss website, kinloss.org.uk forward slash inspiration, and you'll see the program and when you can turn up. And is there a charge for the day? There's no charge at all. Donations, absolutely welcome. And is food going to be served? There's a breakfast for anybody who's there when we start. During the day, there will be lunch and dinner available at a cost through caterers. Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue talking to Kate Fulton there about their Day of Inspiration event, which takes place on Sunday the 15th of May. And if you would like more information, then you can always go to kinloss.org.uk forward slash inspiration. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today are journalist Jenny Fraser and retired audiobook reader Denise Assison. The subject for this edition is based on what we heard Kate talking about a little earlier on, Judaism, in particular the religious side of it. It would appear as though for many years our religion hasn't done much to either encourage nor attract the irreligious amongst us to adhere to the basic laws of halakha. The question is, should we be concerned that Judaism as it once was could be dying and are we in danger of future generations not knowing anything about where they came from? Let's start with you, Denise. Were you encouraged to be religious when growing up? Very sadly. When I was growing up, it was during the war, and my father came from Stuttgart and hardly told me I was Jewish. So we kept absolutely nothing. The first time I knew about Judaism was when I got married. And that's when I really started to be very interested in it. And I've got a son who is ultra from so really? Oh, yes. In fact, I think I knew that. But it must have been very difficult if you knew nothing. I knew absolutely nothing. Was I, there a reason? Was there a reason why? I why your father just, didn't? Was it something to well, do? Well, he was with bringing it? so many people over from Germany, and we lived near the coast. And I think it was because he was thought I was too young to take it in, and would tell everybody I was Jewish and tell everybody I was half German. That's the only thing I can think of, because oh. I was—I never asked him. Did you have Jewish friends at least? I had extraordinary. I had no anti-Semitism. There was a, there were only two Jewish girls in the school, and I was head girl, so you can imagine there was no anti-Semitism. Yeah. And she, my best friend, was Jewish, and I 
been friendly with her right up till this year when she died. Did you know that you were Jewish? If oh, yes, been... absolutely. Yeah. And extraordinarily, I always knew I only wanted to marry somebody Jewish. And mm. I don't know why. Oh, Jenny, how about you? <laughs> you were you brought up in a, in a, in a very religious way? Or? I was brought up in a very traditional Jewish home. I would say that my grandmother ruled the family with a rod of iron and Shabbat afternoon teas were a three-line whip. And you turned <laughs> up, unless you were actually not physically in the country, and you observed Shabbat and Kashrut and everything. Everything. What would you call a traditional upbringing then? What is traditional? Well, I don't know. Does it count? I went to Cheda till I was 16 when I fi- Gosh, <laughs> finally rebelled. Quite... <laughs> Did you go to synagogue every, every Shabbat? Pretty much, yes. Not necessarily willingly, I would I would admit. But I, I have to say, I do think things are terribly different now. You know, we've discussed, I think, before, the enormous number of children in this community who go to Jewish schools. How can they possibly avoid having a good knowledge of Judaism? And how can we even think of suggesting that it's going to die out? But many, many of those children who go to Jewish schools... They might go to a Jewish school and they might be sent there because their parents are Jewish, but their parents are still irreligious and are, what do they call them, uh, culture, cultural Jews. Secular Jews, Circular, really. Yes, secular, secular Jews, yeah. yes. That's certainly the case, but, you know, uh, obviously there are going to be secular Jews and children who are sent to Jewish schools whose parents don't practice at home. But I think that generally people find that what, what happens at school stays with them and they they retain some affiliation to the construct of Judaism, whichever particular denomination they happen to pick. Adam, you've got four daughters. Five. Five, yes. Pick a button. <laughs> Five <laughs> but last time I counted, yeah. Yes, sorry. <laughs> uh, they are four of them are at Jewish schools. One of them's not old enough yet, but she will be soon enough. And it's quite unusual. Well, I found it unusual coming from outside of London and not growing up in a Jewish community, in a Jewish school. What I've noticed is that a lot of the families are not very religious and that they actually see the school as their religious input for their children. So, oh, well, that's doing our, our Jewish bit. Which irks me somewhat because I'm quite concerned. I'm getting the impression that from this discussion so far that oh, it's okay. You know, we'll be okay as 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 a, as a religion in this country. Sadly, I, I'm not so sure because there's the dichotomy between the ultra religious and the expansion that that sector, as we all know, by 2031, a government poll said that. I think 50% of Jews will be Haredi by 2031. Now, that worries me, not because I have anything against the Haredim, but because the secular side of Judaism seems to be coming more and more and more secular. People seem to be polarising the religion completely. I think you're absolutely right. I think that the middle of the road, if I can put it that way, the middle of the road Jew is disappearing. And I think there are four of us sitting here who might be among the last members of the middle of the road Jews. And I find it very, very worrying. Do you not agree with me, any of you? Well, you know what happens if you if you are in the middle of the road, you get run over. Um, <laughs> I, I look. I'd like to put an, a special plea for calling those who are more observant religiously 
rather than ultra-Orthodox, which I really feel is a pejorative term, I'd like to put in a plea for calling them strictly Orthodox. So it means that they, they are indeed the growing demographic in this community, in which case, Adam, I would say that you've argued against yourself because they are going to be the, the spear carriers for Judaism into the next century and beyond. By 2031, none of us will be here to challenge them. And they are indeed growing. I now, do have a problem with that, though. Why? Because... I have no well, I have no problem with the Haredim growing, but my issue is what's going on in this country at the moment with religious practices, with circumcision, with shahita, with yeshivot around the country, with the rise of Islamic extremism. This country, as many countries, have got, for want of a better word, they've got a bit giddy about Islamophobia. Now, that has translated into, oh, hang on, all their practices are a bit extreme and hang on, they, the way they're cut, killing their animals, immediately we're, we're lumped into that and it has happened already. Now, if this country actually does start putting restrictions on, on Brit Millar, on Shahita, I don't see a future for the ultra-Orthodox in this country, then where are we? That's my fear. Well, there are, there are ways of dealing with that for the ultra-religious because there are other countries where, for example, kosher food has been forbidden and they have to import kosher food where circumcision has been banned and that's still carried on somehow. So that, in fact, there are ways of dealing with that. But the fact is that the majority, not just Jews, Christians as well and probably Hindus and probably even some Muslims are losing their religion altogether. They're leading completely non-religious lives. Yeah. And I think this is a great sign. I mean, a lot of churches have closed, hundreds yeah. of churches. So I think it's religion altogether, not yeah. just Judaism. But when I, because my parents were ter both brought up in a very religious way and they just went against it. But when I see my son's family, my son married somebody who was very religious and has six siblings and they nothing will ever stop them being completely Jewish, very from, but not over from. But where do they live? Well, three of them live with their families. Each of them have about eight children here and three of them actually live in Israel. But if there was to be restrictions put on, say, Shechita... Would I imagine most would would then consider leaving the country and going to a country where it is allowed and where oh, they yes. can practice in? Oh freedom. yes, yes. And I think the rise. Of, I think as as was mentioned, the rise in atheism in I this country and in Western society is so rapid that it's true. Islam, Christianity, Judaism—they're all <laughs> suffering because of it. I don't think it'll ever ever die out, Judaism, because I see that no, family. No. And it won't ever die out in America. In America, things are quite different. But then again, in America, it applies to all the religions. But in this country, and we're talking about this country at the moment, religion, I'm saying, not just Judaism, religion is disappearing. Oh, yes. Do you not mm. think so, Jenny? Well, I think there's, there's quite a few strands of argument in here. I, I think that any moves towards banning Shechita I must say to you, Clive, that countries are not banning the importation of kosher food. They're banning shechita taking place in those countries. But if there were any move to that here, 
the impulse wouldn't come from atheism. The impulse would come from people who consider themselves animal welfare activists. Yes. And nothing, yes. to, nothing to do with antipathy mm. to religion. As it happens, there was an anti-circumcision demonstration taking place in Golders Green. A number of gentlemen parading, calling themselves, I think, not for skin. Um, <laughs> and were they Jewish? <laughs> well, I wasn't able to inquire that oh, closely. But I have to say, I don't think that that's something that will make much headway in this country. Fortunately, it's never going to be my problem. But uh, non-Jews also have it done. So. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah, but that, that actually is something that is accepted by, again, the atheists as well. They all think that there's probably a better idea. Uh, it's, um, I don't think it's really religion, that. Do you? Exactly you? not. No. <laughs> but, but generally, this is the whole point, generally, those Jews, well, those Jews that I call the middle-of-the-road Jews, are disappearing. I've seen them disappearing in the, gener in the last three generations. I think it, what is true is that certain sections of the community have become more judgmental. And with the rise of exclusive faith schools, it's become more difficult for people within the community to reach out and place themselves within the, the wider British community. That I regret. In what way? Insofar as I think we are bringing up a generation of increasingly insular people, insular, insular Jews, who don't really need to be in Britain in order to live in, the, in their own little Jewish bubble. Yes, yeah, so you're talking about the Haredim again. No, no, I'm not. I, I, no, I think you're right, Jenny. There, mm. It's not just the Haredim. The, no. the world that I've brought my children into is not the world I grew up in. It's exactly this that you're describing here. It's true. You I'm see, a member of the Liberal Synagogue, and that's grown and grown and grown. I can't see that ever fading away. And see, that's middle of the road, Jews, I would say. The majority of... I'm a Not member the of the Orthodox as well. But but I mean. Many, many, many of my generation and my friends, their children have intermarried. Um, and yes. those mm. that um, are still considering themselves to be Jews consider it all right if they go to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And the rest of the time, the mm. synagogue never sees them. That's sad. Clive, I think that the people on the religious right would say when you suggest, oh, that the next generation in the middle of the road are, are intermarrying, they would say, actually, you're to blame for that in some respect, because I'm not saying that this is my viewpoint, but they would say, you didn't bother to instill your children and your children's children with the right principles of Judaism, so how can you complain if they intermarry? I'm afraid when I say judgmental, that's something which we didn't hear perhaps 20, 30 years ago. Well, I'm not sure about that. What do you think, Adam? Well, it's strange because I do talk about how I feel that they're polarising, but I am optimistic still. Uh, it might not sound like it. I might sound like the eternal pessimist, but I am optimistic. And that optimism comes from the fact that there are so many Jewish schools being built, new schools being built, which does suggest that these so-called secular Jews, Jews that only put their kids into Jewish school to give them their Jewish influence, that's something. 
that without those schools there is nothing and this surely will encourage Jewish friendships, Jewish relationships, yeah. Jewish marriage. That's interesting. I didn't yeah, know. but nonetheless, it, it might do that. But the trouble is that the, there's no thought about the religion as a religion. It's a thought of we're Jewish, therefore well, let's all be friends together. But there's no thought of going on Shabbat to synagogue or staying at home on Friday night and lighting the candles. And, and I hate to say it, but we're a small nation that in the Torah says we will always be a small nation. And we've always been a small nation. So is this just another one of these situations where it will keep us small? Because we have to. I can't think of dying out. I mean, I had a lot of my family married out. I had not even thought about marrying out. And obviously, both my children married Jews. And, well, one has got a partner. But, but it's interesting that they became so religious, one of them, and they certainly weren't brought up that way. They became so religious. In other words, they they went to the other extreme. And we're talking now about the ones that yes. I Yes. But where did that come but from? But I mean, all Denise? my fa- I've got a lot of family who where, were Why did they become religious if they're from such a secular well, background? Where What was the influence? And, and whatever well, I, is, is that what's Because I married a Jewish man who had a who was middle-of-the-road Jewish, and I started from that day having Seder nights and hopefully bringing them up. And I brought mine up. I couldn't do it very well because I didn't know much about it, but my husband did. And I wasn't brought up in that way at all, although my parents were actually both from very orthodox homes. But my mother didn't have a mother, so I think that was... She, right. she died in childhood. But you see, you and I come from a generation where that was the, that was the fact. I mean, my late wife, her mother and father kept nothing... But they were Jews, oh, really? yes. and God forbid that their daughter married a non-Jew. They wouldn't. They would have gone completely and utterly mad if she had. But they had no time. They never went to synagogue. Look, reassuringly, there are a lot of outreach organisations that work very closely with young professionals that encourage people to come back to the religion. People, those people, like this exact situation where the parents had a bit of the Jewish influence, kept kosher and wanted that Jewish culture, but they didn't have the knowledge. And these outreach, thankfully, these outreach organisations... Well, let's hope you're right, Adam. Anyway, thank you all very much indeed for the discussion. I'm afraid our time is up, so we will have to stop talking about it there. But thank you all very much indeed. And Adam and I extend our thanks to our guests, journalist Jenny Fraser and retired audiobook reader Denise Asserson. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter we are at jewishviewsuk. And it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week and this time it comes from Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. Havdalah is one of my favourite Jewish rituals. If you're not aware of it or need a reminder, then in brief, it is a ritual that bids farewell to Shabbat by trying to stimulate our senses so that we can hang on to the beauty of the Sabbath day and all that it brings to our lives before we return to the humdrum of routine and generally horrendous busyness. Havdalah means to make a distinction, to differentiate, This ritual marks the differentiation between holy time of Shabbat and the rest of time, the sacred from the mundane. 
living as I do outside of the Jewish hoods, rather at the gateway to the countryside, with children who go to secular schools and the sports clubs and leisure activities I attend not being overtly Jewish. And I have to admit being a somewhat workaholic rabbi on a Shabbat. Family time often occurs on a Sunday rather than Saturday. As a family, we generally make Havdalah on a Sunday evening, as this marks the end of our special holy time as a nuclear family, when we can give thanks for the time we have had and ask for blessing for what, inevitably, is another crazy week ahead. This week I saw another creative use of a Havdalah ritual by a progressive congregation in Israel. It marked the juxtaposition of Yom Hazikaron, the day on which Israel remembers its fallen soldiers in the many battles the State of Israel has faced in its short history, with Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israel's Independence Day. On so many different levels, a Havdalah ritual reflects the complexity of the State of Israel. All our senses are demanded, as well as our sechel, our common sense, at any given moment in relationship to the modern state of Israel. Both days, Yom Hazikaron, a day of mourning, and Yom Ha'atzma'ut, one of celebration, are necessary to express its reality in our lives. Regardless of the roller coaster ride that our relationship takes us on each year, May we once more have marked out the time, if not a whole day, then a moment to acknowledge the sacrifice that Israelis have made to maintain their state and to wish that state happy 68th birthday. Thank you to Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue for our thought for the week. Now, normally it would be around about this time where I'd be wrapping up the programme and saying thank you to our guests. But just before we go, I think we've got time to shoehorn one more guest in. You may recall a couple of weeks back that I spoke to the lovely Susan Cohen from the Six Point Foundation. And they, of course, the organisation that provide grants to Holocaust survivors and refugees of Jewish origin. And you may recall that we discussed how the organisation was naturally coming to its conclusion. However, we've invited them back onto the programme and Susan joins me on the line now. And Susan, I understand that you need to ask our listeners for their help with something. What do you need our listeners' help with? Well, this is our last big outreach push to help find any Holocaust survivors or refugees anywhere in the UK who may not be currently hooked in with the various organizations or services available to help them. So even though our grant making program will come to an end in March 2017, there will still be loads of wonderful services available specifically for our target group being Holocaust survivors and refugees and whether people want to be involved with them, or at least they know about them so that they can take the decisions for themselves. So this is our last big push to get the word out. We uh, made a, created a film for the big Yom HaShoah event last weekend in Barnet, and it's available by looking at our YouTube channel. It's the only thing on there but it's a film that highlights the range of services available for holocaust survivors and refugees and also does talk about our grants and we've had such a wonderfully positive response to the film and we just want as many people to see it as possible so that people are on the lookout for holocaust survivors and refugees and also just keep it in mind for 
you know, as long as there are survivors and refugees with us. Well, hopefully this will go some way to helping with that appeal. Susan, I'm going to let you go because the line is not brilliant, but I do thank you very much indeed for joining us. So thank you to our guests, Susan Kern, you've just heard. Also, Dana International, Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence, Danny Tucker, Jenny Fraser and Denise Asserson, who were on the schmooze. And of course, you at home for listening. Thanks also goes to our team, our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. And don't forget, you can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And of course, you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.